I think this is the time that Greg talks, right? Is this, are you going to come up here, Greg? Yeah, I suppose right, so. Cool. Might as well. There's nothing else to do. Might as well just do this. How are you doing this morning? Was that that excellent worship? That was a, that was a great worship time. I, that that uh, this means war. That song just gets my juices going. I got joy in my soul. So Josh was talking about the, the Winter Olympics. I've never really gotten into the Winter Olympics. I just don't get into any winter sports. I'm just not me. And uh, so I've never really watched it. But last night I was, uh, Shelly and I were babysitting our grandkids and our oldest wants to watch uh, some of the Winter Olympics. So we're watching this. And it was mind-blowing. Um, this uh, this uh, 17-year-old American uh, named Red. Did you see, did you see that? Yeah. yeah, my gosh. This guy goes off this, uh, he, he's, he's snowboarding. And he does, he goes off this ramp and does this triple, three and a half flip. Three and a half times flip. It was just, I, wasn't that spectacular? And then that was, he got the gold. So, woo, go America. And then uh, there's the, the, the figure skating. I never thought I'd get into women's figure skating. But uh, some of it was so athletic and yet graceful that it, it, I got choked up watching it. You know, they're, they're just so like, kind of like this, you know, they're, they're so graceful and the stuff they can do. And then they go on a spins, you know, like, like this, and then they go up while they're spinning and they grab their uh, skate and then pull it over their head. <laughs> so, so like they're a stick while they're spinning like that. It's like, it's just mind blowing. If I tried that, I'd be in a wheelchair the rest of my life. I, I should try it. Like, yeah. <laughs> Not going to do it. Okay, so we're, we're ending the series. This is we're wrapping up the series we've been on uh, called Next Level Relationships. And um, here's the thing. We're called to be peacemakers. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 9, that uh, blessed are the peacemakers. And we sometimes, I think when we think of peacemakers, we think of folks that maybe go over to you know, Palestine or some kind of a war zone or where there's a lot of uh, civil war tension and try to bring peace between the different groups. And there are peacemakers who do that. Sometimes at great risk to their life, it's a noble calling. But they're not the only peacemakers. Uh, we're all called to be peacemakers. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to be a peacemaker and to be a peacemaker all the time. Um, in all of our relationships, wherever there's conflict, we're to be the ones that are bringing peace to it. Whether it's our marriage or our neighbor or our coworker or our siblings or our kids, whatever. As kingdom people, we have the capacity to bring shalom to that. Unfortunately, let's be honest here, it's not the case that when there's a conflict and we're part of the conflict, uh, often we get sucked into that conflict. We get emotional, and now we're part of the problem rather than the solution. You can't be a peacemaker if you ain't got peace in the conflict situation. You can't give what you don't got. And so to be a peacemaker means that we have to be able to be peaceful in the midst of conflict. Why is that so hard to do? Uh, why do we get sucked into this so, so often? Now, we talked about it a little bit last week. In fact, we talked about a lot last week. Uh, that, that, that what happens is if we're not getting all of our worth and significance uh, from our relationship with God, uh, if the core of our sense of fullness of life isn't based on what God thinks about us as revealed on Calvary, if that's not the case, then we have to try to get it from some other source. It's inevitable. And the, one of the primary sources humans have always gone to uh, from the beginning is getting our life and significance from the fact that we are right or we're in the right. And anyone who disagrees with us is obviously wrong or, and in the wrong. And, uh, and, 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 and see, here's the thing. If your worth is at stake, whatever you're arguing about, there's something else going on if you're not getting your life from Christ. And that is your worth is being negotiated. Your value as a human being. Uh, if, if your worth is on the table, then 
then uh, uh, your amygdala is going to get activated. Your inner lizard, that reptilian brainstem of yours, is going to get activated. And now you're going to be part of the problem rather than the solution. And so it's, it's vital that we're always getting all of our life from Christ. Now, what we want to do t- today is go beyond that um, and, and make it more practical and get a little more specific. And so you may have noticed this table up here, if you're very observant. We're going to have a discussion um, Kevin Calligan, who is a, a pastor on Wilder Hills Church, been here for 17 years, he informed me. I can't believe that. But uh, um, I know it's been incredible. And, and he, he, he's a therapist, and he heads up our sojourners uh, 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 groups. And uh, he's, he's done a lot of teaching on peacekeeping. Um, and there's one particular aspect of his teaching that I've heard for years just rave reviews about. Um, and he's, he's got a paradigm that he uses that is just brilliant. Uh, and a few folks from the first two services have just been, I've, I've gotten a lot of feedback on how, how, how impacting it is. It's intense. There's a lot of content. Keep your thinking caps on. I encourage you to take notes on this because uh, this is stuff that you won't want to forget. Uh, it is so applicable to all of our lives. And so on that note, could you give a warm welcome to Kevin Kellyan? Come on up here, Kevin. The guru. The guru of conflict. Guru. So, Professor, <laughs> pr- Professor Peace. Professor. Yes. Uh, why is it that we have such a hard time with conflict? Why does it happen so often? And why is it so hard to stay peaceful in the middle of it? Speak on. Well, I thought you were going to answer that question. That's no, 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 no. So, it's about my pay grade. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we're, we can all relate to this topic, conflict. We're going to be talking about the cycle of conflict, and then we're going to work from there to the creating a culture of peacemaking and a culture of peace. So the fir- first part of this message is <clears throat> negative and depressing, but the second part is good and Yes, we'll get to the good stuff. So get ready to be depressed. But you're all going to be able to relate to the, this negative side because it's just universal stuff that we can all, we, we're all brought up in. So I, I think to answer your question, you guys know this, but we're all born uh, in this, into this world with heart hungers, heart longings, deep longings for things that the world can't satisfy. Only God can satisfy these deep desires, these deep longings, these deep hungers. But we don't know that, so we try to plug into empty life sources. We try to plug into the things of the world, people, relationships, things that people should give us, etc. and it's empty. And so we're born with these heart hungers, and we're, we plug in, but we're still hungry. But not only are we born with the hungers, but we're also then raised and brought up in brokenness. Because of the emptiness that. that results from plugging into the wrong sources, unplugging from God, we're raised in brokenness. Broken families, broken marriages, we become misshapen by the culture and the society and the families that we're living in the midst of. So that deep hunger that only God can fulfill and the brokenness that shapes and misshapes us just creates in us these patterns we're going to be talking about, patterns of brokenness. Mm-hmm. Broken people can only create broken relationships, which can only then result in broken community. And so we're going to look at this cycle of brokenness and then talk about what the culture of peacemaking is. But at the essence, at the heart of this brokenness of culture is our, what I would call our wound-based filters. Um, because we've, we're hungry, we plug into the wrong things, and people have let us down. We've been wounded in this world, and as a result now, we enter into relationships and, and relationships with people in this wounded mode. And we see everything through the filter of wounding. So we experience what people are doing to us in the present through the lens of our past relationships, our past hurts, our past pain. So we have this wound-based filter, and then the wound-based filtering that happens just leads us to react then with certain patterns and styles, wound-based patterns of reaction. And that's what this this cycle of conflict is about. If you look at the word conflict, in Latin, it comes from a Latin word, confligere. Confligere. 
And that word just means literally to strike together. To strike Confligue. together. It sounds French. It sounds French, maybe. French is a Latin-based oui. language. Yeah. So confligere, which, if, think about that. To strike together. Think of a match and think of the rough side of the matchbox. Ooh. So all of us are like matches, and all of us are also like a matchbox. My uh, ignition potential, a match is basically just a sulfur and sort of a, 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 a flammable thing that if it gets enough friction, it will light on fire, right? And so all of us are like a match, but we're also like match boxes. Inevitably, I'm going to rub against your roughness, and my fire is going to light. Inevitably, you're going to rub against my roughness, and the fire is going to light. And we're going to start fires with each other because of this being cut off from God, being hungry, heart hungers, heart hurts, and this conflict potential. And this, the name of this particular sermon title is Moving Together Rather Than Striking Together. We're going to learn about the cycle of conflict for the purpose of us then taking a close look at Jesus' teaching, which is about transforming conflict and starting to move together through conflict differently. All right. So the first uh, aspect, there's going to be five elements of this conflict cycle. And it's kind of like a recipe. If you they all start the, with R. So this is the R this cycle. The, the next R one's cycle. called the S cycle because yes. it all starts with S. Awesome. Very clever. Good teaching mechanism. So if any of you are cooks or chefs out there, you know you basically have, if you have the right ingredients in the right proportion, every time you'll get the same outcome in your recipe. Well, conflict is like that. I've kind of identified through my own experiences of being a human, being married, uh, also being a pastor and a therapist, five really basic elements that come together in the conflict cycle. We're going to look at them one by one, but I'm sure you're going to be familiar with all of them. You're going to be shaking your head, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. The first one is what I call rights. Rights, our individual rights. personal rights. So basically, rights are our sense of entitlement uh, that we feel like other people owe us certain kinds of behaviors. And it's our way of sort of then demanding, if we're living out of a personal rights uh, orientation, it's a little power mechanism that then I use to demand certain things from you. Now, we think of rights as mostly a positive thing, and rights are needed in society, but it's actually kind of a, a relatively recent modern invention where people have this sense of inalienable rights that can't be taken away from us. But then we use these things as a power over others. We use them as a way of obligating or demanding certain things from other people, and inevitably they're going to let us down. So in fact, our rights aren't inalienable. People take them away from us all the time. Governments give rights to us and take them away. And so it's a, it sets us up for a lot of disappointment in this cycle of a conflict, being rights-focused. I think last week we mentioned this. It goes back to eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the tree of judgment. And we always bend that tree in our own favor. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so we, we, since we're not getting our worth in life from, from God, we're going to get it from judging things. And we always assess ourselves, as, or we usually assess it as uh, we're in the right and they're in the wrong. And, and you, I, I have the right to demand this from you yep. And, yep. and things of that sort. Yeah. yeah. And so if you could imagine then that we're coming into our relationships thinking about ourselves and then using that power to demand things from each other. And of course, then we're going to react to others when they do that to us. And so that just sets us up for these mutual power plays. So you're not American then, obviously. Yeah, yeah obviously you know, not. We, no. we, uh, don't you believe in inalienable, that's hard to say, inalienable, inalienable. rights. Yeah. Well, I'm American, but I'm a Christian American. And so uh, <laughs> the kingdom for me is what we're called to first. I know you are too. But this idea of inalienable rights, things that can't be taken away from us, the Bible doesn't really talk in terms of rights. It talks in terms more of righteousness. Okay. The idea of righteousness in the Bible is what I'm supposed to do for you, not what I'm trying to get from you. 
So the idea of righteousness is doing right. It's my calling to do right to you, to honor your value. The Bible doesn't talk about inalienable rights. It talks about inherent value that God ascribes to all of us. And that can't be taken away. And so when I receive my inalienable or inherent value from God, and if I'm living in that and plugging into that, now I can go to you instead of trying to defend rights and demand, and through demands from you, I'm able to extend value to you and, and help you plug into God as well. So the idea of righteousness is doing right to others as God has done right to me. And it, so it flips the, the rights mentality on its head. Rights is about contract mentality. We try to bind people to certain behaviors. Right, right. Covenant is about my responsibilities to you, and I'm going to do those regardless of what you do to me. So it, it, rights are, it seems like, uh, it, it's sort of a legal paradigm. Very much. It reflects the, you know, this is what happens with the fall. The accuser makes us all accusers. And so what people get, when, 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 they're, when they're not aware of the unsurpassable worth of people, then you have to have rights to keep you know, people yeah. acting right together because they're not acknowledging yeah. the inherent yeah. worth. Yeah. So it's the next best thing. Next best thing, it's, it's better than nothing. It does sort of hold things in check a little bit. It restrains things, but it still isn't, it's really not a cure for conflict. It no, still doesn't re, uh, keep us from wounding each other. It, so we, it's actually kind of a cause of conflict because yeah. it's inherently adversarial. Absolutely. I have rights, you have yeah. rights, and then we have to yeah. negotiate that. Yeah. And it leads to the next R in our cycle of, of conflict here, which is reactions. Because I have this deep sense of you owing me and rights that you owe me, and then I can leverage those against you. When you fail me in those ways, then I have these reactions that happen within me. What I would say reactions are, it's an inner explosion that sort of takes place inside of me where my emotions well up in response to you, you know, threatening a right or violating a right of mine. So I've got this flood of feelings that then produces all these negative thoughts that result in these impulses to kind of lash back. So it's this inner explosion. It's a chain reaction within me that then is going to, if I don't notice it and I'm not aware of it and I don't learn how to take a different approach, it's going to play out outwardly in my life towards Your inner you. lizard comes my out. Inner Your reptilian yeah. brainstem, yeah. yeah. And our reactions, we're all primed then for these inner reactions. We come into every relational interaction already primed. It's like I'm a powder keg of dynamite and you're the spark. And so your fallen behavior is going to trigger and spark my powder keg of emotion, my wounds, my sense of rights, and then we'll have this explosion that happens. But what happens when this inner reaction, the inner explosion happens, I experience the negative emotions, the negative thoughts, the negative impulses, and I feel really bad. And I assume that you're making me feel bad. So your behavior is causing my bad experience. But in reality, as I said, we're each a powder keg already primed and ready for this inner explosion. All it takes is, it only takes a spark for you to create this fire within me, and then that it lashes out. It only takes a spark to get a, <laughs> to fire. Get a fire going. That's what that song means. I always wondered. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what that means. So the idea here is that we are already offendable because of these inner reactions. Mm-hmm. We're offendable, we're insultable, we're angerable, we're irritatable, we're frustratable. We're able to be all these things that then are going to inevitably play out. But we think the other person is causing it, but we're like a glass of wine. If we had a glass of wine here... If, if I knocked it over and the wine spills out on the floor, what's happening is, is that the glass already had the wine in it, right? I might have bumped the glass, but the glass, whatever was filling the glass is what will spill out. And N.T. Wright t- says that that's true of us as broken humans. 
We're, we're like a wine glass. Whatever's in us is going to spill out when we're bumped in our relationships. And so we need to take responsibility then for what's already inside. Jesus points us to take a look in our heart and start there mm. and then work our way outward. So other people are the occasion for us to spill out yeah. our inner wine, W-H-I-N-E. Yeah. Our wine. Oh, yes. Yeah. Very clever. That's so clever. I know. I just... Brilliant. <laughs> took a PhD. PhD to do that, right? Yes, for sure. All right. So as you can imagine, our sense of rights or entitlements, our focus on self, leads to this constant inner reaction, the chain reaction, that then leads to what the next R is, our revenge. We're, we're primed mm. for revenge then. These inner impulses, the negative emotions, negative thoughts, negative feelings, then lead to these negative outward actions of revenge. What revenge is is basically a way of us making others pay for what they've done to us. We're not usually thinking about this consciously. But, you know, when somebody wrongs you, you feel bad. It, makes, it hurts you. It makes you feel bad. And for, for whatever reason, in our legalistic society, we think that justice means that I should be able to make you feel as bad as you made me feel. And that's what revenge is, is that about. true? It's, it's, you made me feel this, and so I'm going to make you feel that. It's the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of mentality. And then that just plays out the cycle endlessly. And so we can have different kinds of revenge, though. Some, some of our revenge is more what I would call hot revenge, and other revenge is cold revenge. Hot revenge would look like if Greg triggers me and does something wrong, bumps me, I might come to him in anger, and I might accuse him, I might blame him, I might judge him, I might fight him, I probably wouldn't do come that. Come on, man, bring it up. But it's a hot sort of revenge. I'm going to make him feel pain through big words, angry words, through hurtful actions, etc. But we can also have cold revenge. Cold revenge is just as painful. All it means is that I'm going to, instead of throwing a relational bomb at you, I'm going to build a relational wall. I'm going to wall you off. I'm going to give you the cold shoulder. I'm going to shut down towards you. I'm not going to care anymore. Those are all forms of revenge, but it's cold revenge. And revenge, all it does is to, is to refuel. It, it serves to refuel the cycle and keep me bitter and angry. And we're going to talk about bitterness down the road. Okay, good. We think that it punishes them, and we think it'll deter their negative behavior in the future. But we all know that revenge, although it's sweet, it feels sweet in the moment, it actually doesn't decrease the likelihood of conflict or poor behavior. No, it increases it's, it, it's, I think. It's, it seems yeah. to increase it's, it. Because you're taking off the other person. And then, yeah. In fact, in some ways, history is just a cycle of revenge. Of revenge it's yeah. been you know, re retaliation. It's a cycle yeah. of violence. Yeah. And so you, know, you, you bomb this house and kill the father, well, then the, you just recruit the kids to yeah. now bomb you, on the next generation, yeah. and they kill you know, your tribe, and they slaughter four, five other tribes, and it, it goes yeah. on, and on it and just on. escalates on and on and on. Yeah. It happens on the national level. It happens on a personal level. Absolutely. The Hatfields and the McCoys on that personal level, the terrorists and counter-terrorists. Yeah. So it's, it's all around us. So revenge doesn't work, but it, it's part of the larger cycle then. So we've got the sense of personal rights, we've got the inner reactions that happen, and then our revenge uh, ten tendency. And this then leads us to rumors, what I call rumors, the next R. Rumors are gossiping. And so this one is a, is a kind go. of a soft form of revenge. It's sort of a cold kind of revenge, where instead of going to the person that we feel has offended us or hurt us in some way, we go around them. Instead of talking with them about the issue we have, we go to somebody else to talk about them. And we're usually talking negatively about them and spreading falsehoods. Even if we're telling true things, our motive is to tear them down. Our motive is to make us feel better and to make them look bad. So in gossip or rumoring, what we're really doing is we're looking for an audience so that we can tell our side of the story. But the other person isn't there to give the full story. But I've got the audience, and I'm going to tell them my side of the story. I'm going to come out of this looking good, 
and the other person's going to look bad, and I'm going to feel better. Or I want a jury. Right. Uh, when I go to gossip, I'm looking for a jury who will convict that guilty party and acquit me. So there's a good guy, bad guy dynamic happening. So you can feel right. I can feel right. It's all about yeah. wanting to feel right. Yep. You know, the thing that's amazing is that there's so much in the Bible. Uh, that, in fact, there's a, it's one of the most frequently mentioned and strongly emphasized sins in the Bible. Uh, sins of the mouth, where you slander people, you gossip about people. I give negative reports about people. It's all over the place in the Bible. You know, James says that the tongue is like a, this you know, fire that can set a force on fire. Because yeah. now yeah. that person goes to other people, and now you've just spread your negativity to them. And it just yeah. gets it's broadened out. And uh, um, it does such damage. Because from there, it goes even further. They tell people, and, and uh, splits communities, and, and all of that. And yet, this is one of the th- sins that Christians tend to wink at. It's like, mm. uh, we think the major sins are out there. We want to you know, pass laws against those people. When the, and then, when the more frequently mentioned and strongly emphasized mm-hmm. sins are, are ones that we just sort of you know, think are, are minor, like everyone does it. In fact, sometimes, the first church I was a system pastor, and we actually had to shut down a prayer meeting because it had turned into this big gossip thing where they come and, we need to pray for so-and-so because I heard she's cheating on her husband. And, you know, da, da, da. and it, really, it was just like a real miracle. So sometimes we even Christianize this. Uh, but it's a classic case where we need to look at the, the, the two-by-four coming out yeah. of our own eyes and, and see that what they've got is a, is a mere dust particle in comparison. Yeah, absolutely. But it's just something that's just so destructive. Yeah, it's very common. It poisons relationships, marriages, families, and communities. But there is, I'm glad you talked about the log in the eye thing, because there is a place where it, it might be very helpful in terms of making peace with others, where it might be good for me to go to somebody else in order to be able to work out my issue with you. Okay. So, and that might not be gossip. So what makes it gossip is if I'm going around you and talking about you instead of with you in order to tear you down and make you look bad and make me look good. But if I'm really trying to peacemake, make peace with you, um, it might be helpful and wise for me to first talk to somebody else so that they can help me look at me. And that's helping mm. me look at the log. So you know it's not gossip. If you're going to another person, like if I'm going to Jane to talk about Greg, my, my problem with Greg... I'll go to Jane for some wise counsel. She's somebody I can trust. I know she's not just going to side with me. I know she's going to push back. She'll listen, but I know she's also going to push back, and she's going to challenge me. She'll hold the mirror up to me. And I could even help her do that by saying, hey, Jane, you know, I've got this issue with Greg, and this is what happened. And you know what? I really need your help because I want to go to him, but I want to go to him in the right way. I want to go as a peacemaker. And I know Jesus calls me to look at my own logs first before I look at the other person's spec. So will you help me look at what I need to look at? So here's what happened. Here's what I was feeling. Here's what he said. Here's what played out. Tell me what I need to know. Help me see what I need to see. Mm. And so that person now can be a wise counselor that helps prepare me to go in a better way to make peace with my brother. So that would not be gossip because the motive is very different. I'm going there to talk about me and to help make peace. I'm not trying to you know, find a jury or an audience for my side of the good. story. It's good. Yeah. So then rumors, rumoring then will lead us to the fifth aspect of this cycle of conflict, which is resentments. Resentments. Basically, it's just unforgiveness. We carry a load of unforgiveness and bitterness and grudges around because what happens over time, living in a broken world with our hungry hearts and the hurts that we carry around, people constantly are re-triggering those hurts and we add this negativity every time we go through conflict. And so we store up more resentment, more bitterness, and the only way to change that would be through forgiveness. Think of it as a cesspool, if you will, in our hearts. Yeah. Resentment and unforgiveness is sort of like a cesspool of negativity, where there's this constant inflow of hurts, offenses, 
wrongdoings and then my own bitterness and, and pain that results. It's a constant inflow into my heart, but then I'm holding on to it. It doesn't flow out of me. And if it flows out in negativity and revenge and reactions, etc., it's not really getting rid of the pain. It just actually brings more into it. Mm -hmm. So what we need is a way for there to be an outflow of this negativity. And that's what we're going to talk about at the end of this conversation is forgiveness. But resentment is the, the energy source for our cycle of conflict. Every system and every cycle needs an energy source to keep it going, to, mm -hmm. to refuel it, to recycle it. And resentment or unforgiveness ends up being the energy source for this perpetual cycle. So you're saying that the, the more resentment conflict. a person has, the more it like sensitizes them to their, to their rights, Absolutely. and so the more prone they are to react, and Absolutely. the cycle goes on and on. Yeah, on. yeah. And we think that forgiveness is this thing that we could really only, we're not supposed to because we live in this uh, justice, retributive justice society where a person needs to pay in order for them to be forgiven. A penalty needs to happen. Somebody must be punished so that I can forgive. They need to earn forgiveness. And so we don't give forgiveness for free. We want to make them earn it or make them pay. And that's not how God's forgiveness works. But it, so we're not going to give forgiveness to them and we end up holding resentment and that right, just right. corrupts and poisons us. We live our people think that they're, they're punishing the other person by ha having this yeah. resentment there. Absolutely. But it's really just destroying them. Destroying us. Yeah, it's a chain on our ankle. I've heard one, somebody say once that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and then hoping the other person dies. There you go. And so we, we really want to get at them, but we're poisoning ourselves and then we're further poisoning our relationships. That resentment now becomes the filter through which we see all the subsequent actions of people. It's like we talked about this in the first couple of services where if you've ever gone to the pet shelter and you're seeing some dogs there, you want to maybe consider adopting a dog, and you're reaching out to pet this dog, and as you extend your hand in love to pet a dog, the dog lowers its head and either pulls away and slinks away or it snarls and shows its teeth, right? What's happening there is that the dog has this filter. Um, the meaning of a human hand reaching toward it is filtered through its own past experience yeah. of being beaten or being hit. This hand could hurt me, and so I'm going to either pull away or I'm going to snarl and fight back. But the resentments in our lives serve as sort of that filter where people, mm. anything that they do now can be seen as that hand reaching toward them in this negative and threatening yeah, yeah, way. Yeah. That's what unforgiveness you know, is. You refer to resentment as the kind of the fuel or the yep. engine that drives this thing. But I think there's actually demonic energy to yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Paul in, in Ephesians 4 says that when you're angry, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil a foothold. So the first word he uses there is orge. It means hot. Okay, well, you're going to get hot, but when you get hot, don't, don't sin. But the way you sin is by going to bed hot. Uh, you, you don't deal with it. Uh, you, you internalize it. And he uses a different word there. The word's paraorge. And it literally has the, uh, the connotation of submerged anger. Anger down under. Because now you've, you've stuffed it. It's inside of you. And uh, that gives the devil a foothold. He's the prince of darkness, and he needs darkness to operate. And when we don't deal with things in the light, we harbor them in darkness, we're giving him a platform, mm -hmm. and, and he can get in there, and it starts polluting everything. Yeah. It's no longer about that particular thing that made you mad. It, it begins to be generalized. And as Kevin said, it becomes a filter through which you, you, you see and interpret everything. Yeah. I, I, I had something happen to me when I was 19 that just drove this home. Mm -hmm. uh, it was an eye-opening lesson. I was uh, a volunteer... I was at the University of Minnesota, and I volunteered for this Catholic organization that would deliver meals and a little present to shut-ins, senior citizens who didn't have anyone to spend Christmas with. And so they're, they're giving out, you know, assigning us our addresses and stuff. And normally they say, spend a little time talking with the people and whatever. But with me, they said, don't bother. 
uh, just drop it off and uh, you don't want to spend time with her and she's not going to spend, we've been de- delivering meals with, to her for a number of years and it's, she's just not pleasant. So I go to this lady's house or her apartment and knock on the door and this lady o- opens the door and I mean, there's a, some people age beautifully, you know, wrinkles can be beautiful uh, and all that, but some people age ugly and this lady, I'm, I'm sorry, but she had a frown frozen on her face. It was a scowl. It was like the stereotypical witch. I don't know how else to describe it. I was like, whoa. Wow. <laughs> Power of Christ builds you. <laughs> Get back. To my surprise, she invited me in. She said, would you like some tea? So I thought, okay, I'll do it. So I, I go in there, and, and she's getting me this tea, and I notice on the wall there's this picture of this stunningly beautiful woman. Uh, it was like a ni- one of these 1920s black and white photos back when they never would smile, but it was still beautiful. It was just g- gorgeous. And so I asked her as she gave me my tea, I go, well, who's that? And I tried not to act shocked when she said, why, why that's me. <laughs> it's like, lady, what happened? Um, but it, it was just radiant. And, and so uh, I, she said that that was her. Uh, she was in the early 1920s, uh, apparently Miss Stillwater or something, uh, beauty queen kind of thing. And that picture was taken right around that time. But I did want to find out what happened, so I started asking questions about her life. And it was a sad story. What had happened was uh, uh, she was engaged to be married to this guy uh, just, just prior to the time this, or just after the time this photo was taken. She was engaged to be married, but three days before the wedding, he broke off the engagement and announced his love for her sister. Yeah. I know, that's nasty. And, 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 and they ended up going off and getting married. And as she's Ouch. telling me this, you could see she's getting activated again. Her pa- she's mm-hmm. telling it with passion. And um, as though she, it happened yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main, her heart was broken, but, but the worst part was her pride. And she said, I could have had any bow in the county I wanted, and I chose him. Mm-hmm. And he does this to me? You know, humiliates me in front of everybody that I know. Run off with her sister. And, and she declared war. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said, after that, I could never trust a man again. She never got married. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, 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 she cut them off. She wouldn't have any contact with them. They tried to ask for forgiveness a number of times, but she said, I would not give them a satisfaction. And she's telling this to me like she's victorious. Uh, but but it, 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 and eventually she wouldn't even talk to anyone who would talk to them. And so she ends up cutting off everybody. And as she's telling me this, it's like it happened yesterday. You can see she lives this. She ruminates on this all the time. But, but here she is all alone. There's nobody that knows about her or cares about her. And, and she is like having this victory in hell. As I was looking at her, I thought, this is a lady who's right now in hell. Yeah. Um, I, I, Milton said that, you know, it puts in the words of Satan. Satan says, I'd rather reign in hell than be a servant in heaven. And that's kind of where she was at. It's like this resentment brought her down into this, this abyss of misery. She's misery, isolation, loneliness, sadness. And yet she thinks she's victorious in this. But that resentment yeah. is just, that's when I locked it in. It is a cancer. It's yeah. demonic. And whatever yeah. it takes to get, stay Absolutely. out of that, you want to stay out of that. Yeah, it's a prison of hate, prison yeah. of bitterness. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's yeah. a sad story. And so most of our situations aren't quite that extreme. But all of us have some mix of these five things in our lives, right? You were able to relate to those five elements. The self-oriented rights, the wound-based reactions, the justice-based revenge, conflict avoidant rumors, and then the, the cesspool of resentment. Mm. And so that's the cycle that plays out that keeps our relationships broken and keeps us in conflict. And in the world, oftentimes, what people try to do is just help us to manage conflict better. We talk about conflict resolution, conflict management. 
And that's better than nothing, but it's still not what Jesus' kingdom is all about. Right. So, you know, when you're resolving conflict, one conflict after another, you're working it out so we each get what we want, and then we move forward, we have another conflict, and so we work that out so we each get what we want. Well, that's falling so far short of what the beautiful community that Jesus calls us to be. Right. And just managing conflict so that we each get what we want. And, and that's not different than what the world around us is doing. Mm. Now, it's good, to, to it's good to resolve conflict. It's good to manage conflict. But if we're going to show the world who Jesus really is, we have to go from conflict resolution to conflict transformation. We need to do something completely different. We need a new paradigm. And the good news is that Jesus comes to teach exactly something radically different. With the five elements of this cycle of, of conflict in mind, if you just go back and reread the Gospels now, just reread Jesus' words, in the light of these five things that are so typical of us, you'll start to see that Jesus spoke directly to every one of these very typical natural things that play out in our relationships. And he spoke with some countercultural, radically different principles. Radical. So different that... You know, when we read them, we say, well, that, I could never do that. Oh, that's, that's unrealistic. Um, theologians, even for a period of time, um, were dismissing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is full of relational, revolutionary relational pr principles. Some theologians have said, well, that wasn't ever meant for us. Jesus knew we couldn't live those out. That's for the millennial kingdom. Someday when Not Jesus practical. reigns, then all those awesome things will happen, but we can't live that now. Well, no, wait a minute. Jesus was teaching that to his disciples. He sends right. his Holy Spirit to live in us, to give us the power to actually live those crazy-sounding things out. And if we, as Christians, if we as the church, disciples of Jesus, would just try to start living these basic teachings, we're going to look at five principles that Jesus teaches. If we would just try to start putting feet to those and use our conflict as the learning lab, because conflict is inevitable, and we shouldn't try to avoid it. Instead, let's embrace it and use conflict as the opportunity to dare to apply what Jesus teaches. And if we do that, the world's going to st start looking and say, wow, that, that looks different. That couple looks different. That friendship looks different. That community looks different. That church looks different. Maybe there's some truth there. That, that's supernatural. And so this is what Jesus is about. All right. And it starts with us getting plugged back in with our source, our life source. We need to unplug from all false sources, idols that just drain us. They don't add anything good to us. Unplug from the world unplugged from people as a way to get full and have life and plug back into our Heavenly Father and into the love of Jesus. And now we're plugged into there. We're make, we have peace with God. And now we can now be, be able to move out into relationships Changes as everything. peacemakers and we can now cultivate a culture of peace. So here's the five things that Jesus challenges five us S's. and teaches us and, and empowers us to do. First is self-denial. Self-denial. Now, self-denial doesn't sound fun. It goes against our American dream of self-fulfillment and self-expression, etc., self-sufficiency. But Jesus calls us to self-denial. He talks about taking up a cross, laying down your life, etc. And so instead of defending rights, personal rights, and using power to get what I think I deserve from you, Jesus tells me to lay down my life. Laying down my life is way bigger than just laying down my rights. Laying down my life means I'm willing to die for your benefit. And so self-denial is about laying aside our rights, laying down our lives, uh, and, and giving up what I really want in order to, for you to get what you really need. Self-denial. Philippians 2 is one of the most beautiful stories of how Jesus himself does this. It mm -hmm. says in Philippians 2 that Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, he was equal to God, but because he was on a mission to bring love to us, he was willing to let go of his right to godness. He was willing to deny himself all the privileges 
of being God and instead become a human who was vulnerable to be mistreated and lied about and being hurt, etc. He was willing to lay all of that aside for us to have life, to us, for mm. us to be free. Yeah. And it involved his ultimate act of self-denial. The incarnation was huge and then the crucifixion was huge. Huge acts of self And Paul explicitly there says, let this mind be in you, which yeah. was also in Christ Jesus, Absolutely. who, being in the form of God, didn't grasp after it. Yeah. So this is something that we're to go and do likewise. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the irony is that Jesus did that, and it, let, let that go. But in Hebrews it says, for the joy that was set before him, he yeah. endured the shame of the cross. Yeah. And, and the truth is, I mean, Jesus says, if you lose your life, you'll find it. Um, what you really desire, if, if, you're, if you're tapped into you know, other sources of life and affirmations and rights and all that as a source of life, you think that what you want is that. But actually, that's life-sucking. That, that sucks life out of you. It's, it's part of the demonic delusion of this world. And if, if you can die to that, and that's what Jesus yeah. is calling us to, die to that false self, that idolatrous self, now you'll find, find what life really is about. Yeah. The, the best way to live is, Absolutely. I've sometimes said that, you know, the best way to live is an, as an, an animated zombie. Uh, you know, you, you've already died. You've lost it all. So you're clinging to nothing. And, and you can do that because you're getting all your worth from Christ. And now you find out how to live free and how to live joyful, how to live, how to live in peace. Yeah, it's you're not true. clinging to life. Absolutely. What I often will tell people is, the self-denial is me being willing to give up what I want now for what I want most. Yeah, the that's deepest good. desire Ooh, is to, be, to plug back down. in, to have God's love and to have God's joy. This is what Jesus does. He's willing to give up the now kinds of things for the most kinds of things. And that's what self-denial ultimately is. So then the self-denial leads us to security in Christ. Security in Christ. So that's where our hearts are anchored and plugged into the source where God tells us who we are. Our identity is solid in him. We do have this inalienable value that it can't be taken away from us, and we're living off of that value, that love that God gives to us through Jesus. So being secure in Christ. Jesus also models this for us. He was secure in his Father's love. One of my favorite stories about how Jesus illustrates this is on the night before he goes to hang on the cross, he's gathered with his disciples. And it says that because he knew in John 13, it says, knowing who he was, he knew who he was, mm -hmm. he knew where he came from and where he was going, and that everything had been given to him. So this amazing stuff. He knew where he came from, where he was going, and that all things had been given to him. That's his identity. His identity is rock solid in the ultimate truth of who he is in the Father's eyes. So what did he now, do? Because he knows this then, he can take off his coat, he can take up a towel and a basin, and he can kneel at the feet of mere human beings who are going to betray him and deny him shortly, and he can wash their feet and serve Amazing. them. Amazing. And so he models for us this being anchored and secure in the love of the Father. And he invites us to be secure in his love. Security and, and that's the thing I think that, that enables you to begin to be healed from your woundedness. Absolutely. Uh, that that when, 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 when you're secure in who you are in Christ, uh, it, it means that you don't, you don't get points for having it together. And you don't lose points for not having it together. You don't lose points if you're wrong or mistaken. And, and that means you can look at yourself objectively. Absolutely. You know, because yeah. as long as your worth is, is, is involved in the game, you can't have an objective perspective. You're always going to be accusing and excusing. But when, when that's all settled, it gives you the freedom to just objectively look at things. And uh, last week, I confessed that in one episode, and only in one episode, I, I, I sucked as a husband. Remember that? I, I mentioned and, and that, uh, um, but that's the only time that's ever happened, still. Oh. But, but I can do that because I, I don't get points for being a perfect husband. I don't lose points for being imperfect. So I can go ahead and admit that. And, and that means I can begin to you know, assess what's wrong and, and, and make progress and I'm becoming better. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's yeah. true. Yeah. 
Every we, can let, we can let our guard down. We can let our facades down, our shields confess. down when we're secure in Christ. Right, right. And then we can let him into the wounds and he can start to bring healing. We can look at our logs so that then we can be free to see and help others with their specs, etc. So self-denial, security in Christ, and then that leads us to the next S, which is sacrificial suffering. Oh, this is happy. We don't like this one at all. <laughs> suffering. How many of you like that word, suffering? Uh. But if you read the Gospels, read the New Testament, suffering is an actual inherent part of the call of being a follower of Jesus. He tells us the pathway is a pathway of suffering, self-denial, self-sacrifice, and we're going to need to follow that pathway to, of taking up a cross. But it's a sacrificial suffering. It's not suffering for suffering's sake. It's a suffering that can actually redeem situations. It can free me from my own sin and from Satan's power. It can help free us in our relationships. So it's a sacrificial suffering. And we see Jesus modeling this constantly, but he also teaches us things like, well, turn the other cheek. When somebody hits you on one cheek, you turn the other cheek instead of reacting back out of self-protection or revenge. Yeah, and that's opposite of revenge. Opposite so of revenge. Tit yep. for tat, eye yeah. for an eye, you turn the other Absolutely. cheek. He calls us to bless instead of curse. So, so what would you say about uh, people who are in, say, abusive relationships? Because mm. um, they could be hearing you yeah. saying, oh, you just got to put up and bear it and let them you know, walk yeah. all over you. Yeah. Well, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, which is usually thought of as the wedding chapter, but it's actually this radical Jesus-looking love chapter. In there, it does tell us that love... It does apply to marriages. It does apply to marriages, yes. It, It tells us there, Paul says, love bears all things and love endures all things. And so we are called to bear with the brokenness of each other, which will mean suffering. But I think there's a difference, like if we're, any of us are in an abusive relationship where somebody is physically or seriously emotionally abusing and violating me or you... Um, I don't think it's loving just to continue to let that go on. Um, it's, it's one thing to bear all things and to engage in sacrificial suffering. You would be doing that sacrificial suffering in order to express love and to free the person. But sometimes, um, I, what I would say most often when somebody stays in an abusive relationship, it's usually out of either fear, they're, they're afraid to speak up and stand up against that because it'll probably bring more abuse, right? Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. an understandable fear. Or it's a fear of losing you. So I'm not going to stand up and confront you or impose consequences because I'm afraid to lose you. And I, I don't I'm want more abuse. To. Okay. <laughs> so, so, and that's very understandable, but that's a fear-based motive is a very different thing than a love-based self-sacrifice. Suffering out of true love. I'm grounded in love, for, um, that God's love for me, and I'm extending love to you. Yeah, good. It's a very different thing. There will be times where, in a very extremely abusive situation, the most loving thing to do is to put up a boundary, yep, maybe yep. allow consequences to hit that person for their own good, not as an act of revenge or punishment from me, yeah, but yeah. to help free them. Here's where I think it's, it's, much, <clears throat> it's much more helpful to think in terms of your worth rather than rights. Because yep. rights is about retaliation. Uh, but but if you if you think about worth, you 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 have this unsurpassable worth and uh, uh, deserve not to be treated like this. That's not that, that's not reflecting your worth. But this abuser also has unsurpassable worth. That's right. Uh, and it's, you're not loving them by letting them think that this is how you treat other human beings. Yeah. That's beneath them as well. Yeah. And so whatever action <laughs> needs to happen for for them to be wake up to this uh, needs to go on. And and that sometimes means re, 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 remove, removing yourself. Yeah. Uh, you know. I, Jesus, it was loving for Jesus to lay down his life, but there's nothing loving about just getting murdered, <laughs> right? right? right. Okay, he, he chose that, and, yes. and, and it was his volition. It, yeah. He didn't just let it happen to him. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, examples of this sacrificial suffering is Martin Luther King Jr. Absolutely, and of course, yes. is Black History Month, and I'd encourage you, my family just watched the movie Selma recently, it's great show. and it's a powerful illustration of, of the amazing counterintuitive power of sacrificial suffering. 
Martin Luther King Jr.'s message was not just to free uh, African Americans from the mistreatment by white people, but to free white people from their own uh, tendency towards mistreating others right, and right, judging right. others, right? So it was mutual freedom, and that's a beautiful thing, but it took their willingness to, be, to suffer and endure instead of to lash back. He would even tell people, I don't want you to march yeah, in this right. don't unless you're doing it not just for unless your own freedom, you love but for the freedom of the people. oppressor, because yeah. Yeah, they're, they're caught in the system. And, and, it, and it, you know, there's still a long way to go in our society in terms of reconciliation Obviously. and racism, mm -hmm. etc. But that brought some pretty significant breakthroughs at the time. Sure. And, so, and Jesus certainly models this. So we've got self-denial, security in Christ, sacrificial suffering, and that leads us to the and next And you've got four S. minutes. All right, we're going to do it. <laughs> Seeking reconciliation. So the idea here is that Jesus teaches us to not seek revenge or to avoid the other person, but to actually initiate going to the other person to reconcile. Not to get what I want, but to, let's reconcile the relationship. Let's do what Jesus wants. Let's work out our relationship in a Jesus-looking way. And so the idea is here that we go directly to the other person. We go out of love. We go gently. And the whole purpose is to heal the relationship and to benefit the other person not just to get what I want. And so we're seeking reconciliation. We're taking the initiative. Jesus talks about in Matthew 6, he says, if you're at the altar presenting your offering, and when you're at the altar, you remember that you have something between you and a brother or sister, there's an unreconciled relationship. He says, don't continue to present your offering. Lay that aside. Go be reconciled to your brother. Initiate that reconciliation, and then come present your offering. Mm -hmm. So he puts the burden on us. No matter who caused the breach, Jesus puts the burden on us to initiate that reconciliation. It's hard to do, but Jesus teaches... And it always goes better if you if, uh, start with confession as yep, opposed to absolutely. accusation. Yeah. yeah, and if we're doing these other things, you know, getting plugged back into our life source. And so then the seeking re re uh, reconciliation leads us to the final uh, aspect of the culture of peace, the cycle of peace, which is 70 times 7 forgiveness. And this is the answer to... to times 7. This to is the opposite of, of the resentment. Yeah. So instead of carrying around this cesspool of, of resentment... Jesus teaches 70 times 7 forgiveness. That idea comes from one time when Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Hey, Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive my brother when they wrong me? Up to seven times? And he's probably bragging when he did that. Yeah, like, I'm going to do it seven times. Right. And the number seven has some significance to the Hebrew mind. Seven was the number of fullness. Seven was the number of completion, right? The, mm -hmm. the earth was created in six days. On the seventh day, God rests. So it's the number of completion or fullness. So Peter's thinking there, well, you know what? If I've forgiven, if I've forgiven Greg I've done my job. seven times, then on the eighth time, I can let him have it. So Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. I, I'm not calling you to forgive up to seven times. I'm calling you to 70 times seven. So the 491th time he does that. <laughs> no, uh, no, 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 no. 491st. It's Jesus' way of saying in the Hebrew mindset, infinite. Seven means completion. Yeah. 70 times seven means infinite. Unending, Endless. unlimited. Yeah. It will never stop. So every time, forever, this person, you to extend forgiveness. Now, again, forgiveness doesn't mean that the other person was right, that what they did to you wasn't wrong. It doesn't mean letting them off the hook. What forgiveness is is simply me being willing to let go yes. of the burden of resentment I'm carrying and to, and to give them the gift of the release of debt. Right, right, right. So, doesn't mean you like the person or you trust the person, uh, you want to hang out with the person, because the person may not be trustworthy and they may not be likable or any, it doesn't mean any of that. It just means you let that go. Yeah. Uh, that's what Paul says, leave all vengeance to God. Uh, if, if, you know, God will sell the score later on. Uh, our job, it's for our sake. Yeah. So you don't become like that old lady I talked about. Yeah. Uh, you, you let it go. Yeah. It, it, it may be atrocious, un seemingly unforgivable. It was terrible. But for your sake, you've got to let that go. 
Yeah. Uh, and that's the only and it doesn't mean piece. reconciliation necessarily. So we can forgive somebody, right, right. but if they're still acting out such broken behavior that it's very harmful to be in a relationship, forgiveness doesn't mean I have to come back into close relationship. Now, if they're not starting able to change right, right. and start to engage in a healthy relationship, I might need to keep a healthy distance from them, but I can still forgive them. Reconciliation mm -hmm. takes two, Take, but forgiveness yeah. really takes forgiveness one. That's why you can forgive dead people. Yeah. You know, they don't have to forgive yeah. you back. Absolutely. Um, you just, just let it go, let it go, let it go. And, and just like you know, resentment uh, uh, feeds into the cycle, the, the R cycle uh, the, of, of conflict, the more you forgive, you find that that feeds into the cycle of, of uh, peace. Culture of peace. I'd like say one more thing, yeah. Greg. Is this one more uh, thing? Oh, got yes, a workshop thank you. coming up. I, I forgot to, to I, announcement. <laughs> uh, I forgot that's the first two uh, services. Thanks. Uh, uh, we're, we've been talking about relationships, and now we're going to have a seminar on relationships uh, on March 27th. I'm going to March 2nd. <laughs> I got to take off my glasses March so I can read this. On March 2nd, uh, from 7 to 9, that's a Friday, and then continuing on Saturday from 9 to 1, uh, uh, Paul Eddy and Annie Purdue Olson are, will be having this, this seminar on relationships and dealing with conflict and, and how to strengthen them, all sorts of stuff like that. So I encourage you to check that out. There's more information about that in your bulletin. And also, right. if you're interested, all the stuff we talked about here today is something that we teach in our class called Revitalizing Our Relationships. And oh. that'll be happening again in the fall, starting in September. It's a 13-week class in Cultivate. So, do you teach that? Yeah. It's there you go. Video. All right. <clears throat> Amen. Would you stand? If you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, it could be about this topic, it could be about something totally different, uh, but I encourage you to come up here and our prayer teams will be up here by the stairs and they'd love to pray with you, all right? So take advantage of that. And if you're here this morning and you're not a surrendered follower of Jesus, uh, I would encourage you to consider becoming one. And if you want to find out more about that, just come up here and talk to these folks and they'd love to explain that to you. As we leave here, can we do it as the people who are committed to getting all of our life worth and significance from Christ? Because life is Christ. Nothing else matters. Everyone say, life is Christ, nothing else matters. Life is Christ, nothing else matters. God bless you guys. Go out, love, love your neighbors.